Welcome to Beyond the Block, or this rather collaborative episode of Beyond the Block and Faith and the Faithful Feminists, where we are joined today by Channing and Elise. I'm James. For those of you who are new, just wanted to take a moment to briefly introduce ourselves to each other's audiences if you are not familiar. Um, so Channing and Elise, can we start with y'all? I am Channing. My pronouns are she, her. And Elise and I are the co-hosts of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. Yep. And my name is Elise. Also, my pronouns are she, her, and hers. We are super excited to be here with the guys at Beyond the Block. My name is Derek. My pronouns are he, him, and his. I've been working with James on this for about two years now. It's a lot of fun. I love talking about the scriptures. I love I talk about them too much, right? But here I am. So I'm so glad to be doing this joint episode we bring out the four of us bring out the best in each other so i'm glad we're here and i'm james jones pronouns he him his just so important to be able to get these perspectives and also to be able to be in community with each other so thank you both before we get into the come follow me just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the dialogue podcast network a collective of independent interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful respectful and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the lds tradition thought arts and culture find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network that's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network so today we are in the Doctrine and Covenants, and we are looking at sections 6, 7, 8, and 9, which are primarily a discussion about the introduction of Oliver Cowdery into the work of translation. Uh, rather than give some context on these verses, we are just going to go ahead and leap right into the content, peppering in the context as needed, and we will go ahead and just go chronologically through these verses. So... I believe up first will be Channing. What you got for us, fam? Yes, I'm so excited. Today we're going to be talking about ecofeminism. And I know that that is a new subject for many people. So I just want to give a quick definition. Ecofeminism, as defined by the dictionary, is a philosophical and political movement that combines ecological concerns with feminist ones regarding both as resulting from male domination of society. And so we see ecofeminism pop up right off the bat in the text. So we start in section six, verse three. And I'll go ahead and read that verse just because I'm sure our listeners aren't like following along with the text open in front of them. So that verse says, Behold, the field is white already to harvest. Therefore, whoso desireth to reap, let him thrust in his sickle with his might and reap while the day lasts, that he may treasure up for his soul everlasting salvation in the kingdom of God. And so what kind of tipped me off to wanting to do a more ecofeminist interpretation of this verse is the imagery that's contained in there. First, we have the, the, this field, which is described as being white or pure. It's open. It seems to be ripe and ready for the taking. And then on the other hand, we also have this figure who is reaping and um, he is distinctively masculine in the text. He has a male, like a masculine pronoun. And if we think about other synonyms for the word reap, um, some of them include obtain, retrieve, secure, profit. And as we look through the language that's also scattered throughout the verse, one of the verbs that I feel like is the most striking is this word thrust. 
And um, we get the synonym here, force, impel, drive, plunge, ram. And so I find it striking that we see this more active masculine character of the reaper exerting his will and power over the more passive and feminine element of the field. And so this is where we kind of get this ecofeminism topic coming into play. And so we really get the sense, especially from the verbiage in the verse, that there isn't a whole lot of consideration that is happening for the field. And I feel like this definitely has some concerning implications when we consider a little bit of the subtle sexual undertones of the language used in the verse, and not to mention the more overt correlations between this idea of dominance and oppression. And so from an environmentalist standpoint or an ecological standpoint, um, if we think about the field as a literal field, um, the field may be white and it may be ready to harvest, but one of the questions that I have about it is, does it need to be harvested? And if it is harvested, who does it benefit? So certainly those who harvest the field will feast, but what about all of the other living beings that rely on this field for food, for shelter, um, and for hunting and prey? And so certainly the harvesters will benefit, but will the birds, will the animals, will the soil? And what is treasure to humans can also mean destruction and desecration of home and family for non-human life especially in a colonial and industrial society. One of my favorite poets is Mary Oliver, and she has a poem. It's very short. It's only two lines long, but I feel like it demonstrates this idea really well of the field or a non-living being having its own purpose and its own importance in life. So this poem is titled, Was It Necessary to Do It? I tell you, That ant is very alive. Look at how he fusses at being stepped on. And that's the poem. (laughs) And so I wanted to just change some words in and out of this, this poem. So if we say, I tell you that field is very alive. Look at how she fusses at being harvested. And so I just think it's interesting to consider the field as its own character and its own, like it has its own worth and its own purpose inside of the verse, it doesn't necessarily need to serve this, quote, greater or grander purpose of being harvested to benefit the reaper, especially when we look in the verse, like if we read the verse again, let him thrust in his sickle with his might and reap all the day last and his reward. Ultimately, the field is contributing to his own reward that he may treasure up for his soul, everlasting salvation of the kingdom of God. And there's nothing like, all right, great. Good job, field. Check. You did your job. And additionally, I think it's interesting to see in the text how this mortal field is traded in for the immortal, the reward of eternal life. And in some ways, this could be seen as what Rosemary Radford Ruther calls, quote, an earth-fleeing ethic and spirituality, which has undoubtedly contributed very centrally to the neglect of the earth, to the denial of our commonality with plants and animals, and the despising of the work of sustaining the day-to-day processes of finite but renewable life. And so 
um, ecofeminism is definitely my background. <laughs> it's something that I'm really excited about. So as an ecofeminist, I question the ethics of this viewpoint in the verse. And additionally, knowing what I do about God caring equally for all life, including non-human life, I'm uncertain that this revelation in these few verses captures the whole essence of divinity, of what God would really want. And additionally, I think it's important to examine how this verse is used outside of the text. And I feel like um, this phrase, the field is white and ready to harvest, is often used in um, context of missionary work. And um, again, I question the ethics of this viewpoint. So one way I want to look at this is what qualifies to us as LDS members as, quote, a field white already to harvest? Who who is in that field? Is it the, like, is it uncolonized people from, like, a colonial standpoint? Is it the non-religious? Is it, a, like, the pagans? Is it people not of our faith? And the question that I have here is, with this verse showing such little concern toward those who are, quote, being harvested, what is the cost of harvesting? What addition... What indigenous traditions have been lost in the name of missionary work, especially as we broaden the scope into Christianity as a whole? What languages have gone extinct? What sacred, what sacred places have been desecrated, destroyed, repurposed, and renamed? What families have been broken, torn apart, displaced, and disowned because the reaper said it must be so? And um, I think this verse has a few has a further and more dangerous implication as we move to the verse following so in verse 4 it says yea whosoever shall thrust in his sickle and reap the same is called of god and i'm concerned about this verse especially because what it does at least paired with the one before it is it provides the oppressor with a level of a of acceptance from the divine like that it's condoned and um god wants this to happen. And so I recognize that this is a very harsh critique and ecofeminism is kind of a fringe or not centralized um, viewpoint of feminism. But I think looking through these two lenses and understanding what I do about colonialism, white supremacy, and privilege afforded to Christianity in the U.S., I also don't know that I can unsee the correlation and read the verse differently. So I have a few questions that I wanted to put to the group and just see like what we think. So any of these are on the table. I think some things I'm wondering about are, do these verses have value for the LDS audience? Does the environmental and social impact outweigh the potential value of the verses? And or is there a more helpful or healing interpretation that we can offer of these verses? So I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think that the breakdown that you did here was so, so enlightening. And it also makes me think of a like real life example that I'm a part of right now. So in Phoenix, last year, they started a French speaking branch, um, like an, a French speaking LDS congregation that my partner and I are, are a part of. And the majority of people that like would be interested in coming to this French speaking branch are not necessarily people from France, but refugees or immigrants from West Africa. And so we have like lots of missionaries in this very, very small branch that are seeing the, this group of West Africans as like 
a field that's ready to be harvested, but there is a lot of, I don't know, dismissal of culture and of ways of life in order to like force or assimilate this group of people to be a part of, yeah, the gospel is enriching and, and a loving place, but not when it um, thrusts in its sickle and kind of removes these people from their traditions and from their history. I was going to answer the third question with a resounding yes. There is, uh, in my opinion, I definitely think in the, what's it been? almost 200 years since this revelation was written. There's probably a better way to say this. And uh, this is a conversation that Derek and I have had occasionally on a couple of times on the show since we've started discussing the Doctrine and Covenants. And that is just basically that Joseph Smith was operating from a framework where perhaps in his weakness, this was just the best language he had. And there are definitely imperfections in that language that I can have grace uh, with, but at the same time, offer this critique and the kind of implications that this language has on you know people today, particularly those who are accustomed to colonizing or just otherwise marginalizing. Yeah, so I had a question myself, and as I'm sort of pondering through this, what I'm realizing is in our scriptures, we've got a mess because there's power in the scriptures, and that power can latch on to the good. But it's the same power that latches on to the good that also can latch on to the problematic. And separating those can be quite difficult, which is why we need trained theologians. You know, I'm putting in a plug for my people here. But, for example, just like James pointed out, Joseph and his community all were in an agricultural world. They literally planted fields to feed their families and they had to harvest it or else they wouldn't have any food. And so that is the language that spoke to them. That doesn't make this language okay then or now, but it is the language that they used to frame what they thought God was inspiring them to say. And then the question is, what do we do with that? I know Rudolf Bultmann talked, he's a, uh, or was a New Testament scholar, and he talked a lot about demythologization. That is, all of our religious symbols are mythologized, and we have to demythologize them and sort of take a back from like, what is the surface meaning? What is the literal meaning? And what's it actually saying? And people say, well, that's kind of weird. It's, you'll end up with something lifeless. And his point is, no, then you just have to create new mythologies and you have to re-mythologize with better language, with something more appropriate or relevant for your time. And so that's my sense in which it can be reclaimed. We can look at, well, what is it trying to say? And how do we translate? You know, translation is one of our gifts to the world in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Not that people don't translate, but we have translation as a spiritual gift, as a foundational part of the essence of what it means to be God's people. If we don't translate anything for a new generation, we are not a living church. Ooh. Oh, I wasn't done. I didn't think you were. I was just affirming it. And part of the problem with translation is if you look back at the original use of this metaphor of harvesting a field as missionary work, it comes from John chapter 4. And the interesting thing about that context is this is right after the Samaritan woman incident, and the disciples rush up to Jesus and are like, what are you doing? And he's saying, look, my missionary work is so inclusive that it's going to include these people that you don't like. This, he's talking about Samaria, he's talking about the whole world. This is the field 
that's ripe for harvest. And this is uh, where we should reap. And so this exact same text can be very problematic and also be very inclusive on the on the other. And you just have to be very skilled in how you present it, how you navigate it, how you how you work with it. Because I'm a convert. I consensually was harvested from my own free will. I love this church and I for me, speaking just for myself, I'm glad that I was part of that harvest that was ripe for uh, reaping, right? Now that doesn't mean that anyone else has to see it the same way, but it speaks to the complexity and the care with, it's almost like surgery, delicate surgery to figure out what are the pieces we can retain from this, what are the pieces we have to translate, and what are the pieces that we have to abrogate. I feel like one of the dangers of, like, yes, I agree that we should look at it historically and also find goodness in the scriptures, but I also think that one of the dangers of going down that path with these verses in ecofeminism is that it's not only about the environmental impact, but there's also a tie between the way that the environment is treated and the way that women are linked to the environment. Um, and so this verse not only talks about dominating the environment as if it knows what's best um, for the environment, but that also so that also can so quickly provide a justification for the the treatment of women, right? Like, well, I saw this woman and I thought that I knew what was best for her or I thought that she was ready to be harvested. And so then that leads me to do these certain kinds of actions. And so I feel like that's one of the dangers. Um, if we over, over justify or over analyze, I don't know, but I, I don't, I'm not trying to also like, super push back on you guys. I just feel like that is a little bit dangerous. Right. And that's why I named consent and agency and the initiative and the desires and, and supreme knowledge of the person themselves for what was right for them. Right. And I feel like too, just thinking about like the consent of the converted, I just think anciently, if we look back, not just to like the 1800s or like recent church history, but if we're talking about ancient church history, when Christianity moved northward upwards into Europe, they kind of colonized it as well. They took, they built over sacred pagan sites. They co-opted um, pagan holidays and kind of did forcibly remove that faith the pagan faith and try to exchange it for Christianity and in some ways domination. And so I'm not sure in that case we could consider that consent. And I'm not sure um, in Elise's case where she's talking about her experience in the French ward with the French members, I think there is consent to an extent of saying, yes, we want to be in this community and yes, it's healing and helpful and loving for us, but at the same time, what are we being asked to give up to participate in that community? And can there be a full consent if we can't also be our full self within that community? If we have to trade in parts of our ancestry and our heritage and our culture in order to participate in 
a new space. And so I think you're right that there is some um, surgical attempts and it's appropriate and responsible to um, talk about and examine the nuances that are contained within the conversion process that are contained within missionary work. And so I think it's, I'm glad that we're having these conversations because it highlights um, the delicacy of the matter. And I also think that it shows that missionary work and conversion isn't just like a clean, clear cut thing where the converter knows all and the converted is learning. There's a, I think that there can be a relationship between the two. And there needs to be in order to allow for that wholeness that is going to lead to communities that are healthy, healing, and really do embody what it means to be like in Christ-like community. I'm really glad that you highlighted these verses because I couldn't help but notice that these or a version of these first four or five verses are present in several of the uh, sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay. So I want to talk about Doctrine and Covenants section 6 and 7, and I also want to talk about 18 and 19 because there's a theme here. Now, just to put a little bit of context on this, Oliver Cowdery is involving himself with the translation of the Book of Mormon. And the the time between Oliver Cowdery learning or the time between Oliver Cowdery learning the truth of the Book of Mormon or the work that Joseph Smith was doing and of him starting the translation is very quick turnaround. It's a very quick turnover. In fact, he arrives in Harmony to talk to Joseph Smith about his work, and within 48 hours, he's already his new scribe. So Oliver Cowdery is eager, eager, like good for him. But uh, there are some things that we get to learn from him about allyship that I want to highlight that are uh, brought up in verse 6 and 7 and then 18 and 19. So this is where I want to go. Section 6, verse 6 and 7. Listen to this. He says, keep my commandments and seek to bring... Keep my commandments and seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion. And then look at this caution that immediately follows. Seek not for riches but for wisdom and behold, the mysteries of God shall be unfolded unto you. And then shall you be made rich. Behold, he that hath eternal life is rich. So off the bat, we learn that when it comes to a cause greater than ourselves, we got to check our own wants and our ego at the door. And this is what I think God may have been alluding to. Cause right after these verses that uh, Channing just talked about, this warning comes out. It's almost as like God is saying, I need you to chill a little bit and be mindful of what is to come, what I need you to do, what I need you to be mindful of, because this ain't about you. Perhaps Oliver was tempted, like a lot of new allies, to want a reward or to want a prize for following God to Joseph Smith or a prize for being so eager. I, I don't know why God exactly started off with this, but it makes sense to me that one of the first lessons allies to any cause must learn is that you don't get a prize for showing up. In fact, you don't get prizes at all in this work not not even when you're doing the right thing people when they show up they want praise uh they want to hold on to their privilege they certainly don't want to be criticized and sometimes they want to do work that they ain't got no business doing or just aren't ready for yet but all but all of this stuff misses the point the point is the cause 
And the Lord told Oliver what he would need to serve the cause, which is wisdom. And he promised him that in seeking wisdom, he would be quote-unquote rich, which the Lord defines later as eternal life. This is real richness, and the real reward of uh, allyship is knowing that you're advancing a cause, a worthy cause, that is greater than yourself. But uh, we get down to a few more tips or a few more hints in verse 18 and 19 and 20 where the Lord tells Oliver to stand by Joseph and to be faithful in whatsoever difficult circumstances he may be for the word's sake. And then he tells him to admonish him in his faults and receive admonition of him. And this is followed by some Christ-like attributes, which I don't think to be coincidental. Be patient, be sober, be temperate. And then a second time, he exhorts him to have patience. And then the classic three, faith, hope, and charity. First off, the Lord told Oliver to admonish the prophet in his faults. And I know that Derek wants to say something about this a little bit later, and I want to make space for that. It's just worth mentioning that here is yet another case against this idea of prophetic infallibility and for the case of members and just anybody, even if you're new to the cause, you can say something to the prophet about what they might be doing well or wrong. Secondly, uh, this work of being called out or being called in is part of allyship. When you're admonished in this work, there is a huge temptation to take this stuff personally. But that is a huge mistake. Taking criticism personally shifts focus from the cause and those you're supposed to be serving, and it puts it on you. At which point your effectiveness becomes severely limited. This is usually where people become discouraged. They, they lose hope. They lose patience with themselves and other people and they give up. They stop trying to learn and they get defensive rather than reflective. And, and they unfollow all the activist influencers and accounts that they committed to following just a few weeks earlier. All because they let their ego get bigger than the cause that they were serving. Which, not coincidentally, became the theme for many of the early high-profile excommunications in the church, including Oliver's. Like, Oliver was like, I should be the leader in this piece. I should be running this stuff. And then he gets alienated from the church for like 10 years. But like Oliver and the prophet, people, especially good people, got to accept that they aren't perfect and that they're not going to get everything right. And that when folks embracing you, when they're embracing your... Folks embracing the cause... Got to let you know that the responsible thing to do is hold that L in that case. Good people got to accept that you're going to mess up and that you're not perfect. And that when folks embracing you try to let you know that this isn't in step or that this isn't right, the responsible and the grateful thing to do is to take that L. Because if somebody thinks enough of you to correct you when they could have just left you alone, they still want you here. They still want you to be part of this movement. They still want to embrace you in this cause. So I just wanted to bring that out because I feel like Oliver has a lot to teach us about, you know, allyship, both in the eagerness to embrace the work, but also of the necessity of being on our guard and making sure that we put the cause before our own ego. We're going to see this later in the story that Oliver's like, oh, I got this gift of revelation. Let me see if I can translate some. Whoa, you just got here, Oliver. The Lord is going to bless you with that, but you also got to be mindful and you got to be patient. I'm currently living through some personal circumstances that I feel like as I was listening to you talk, I was like, I get it in like such a big way. <laughs> Yes, this makes sense. It's always more important when you're committed to, um, yeah, social justice work, relationship, 
whatever the circumstance might be, to prioritize the end goal. And in social justice work, the end goal is a healthy community, equality, equity. And so, sure, you can make like tiny little deposits as in, yeah, I'm going to follow these people on Instagram and I'm going to donate to this cause and I'm going to do, I'm going to read this book. And those are all little um, deposits into your social justice bank account. But it's hard for people to get excited about little moves when what needs to happen is such a big, large thing. And I think that it's easy for people to feel discouraged when at the beginning of their activism, they're feeling like, oh, I'm making all these tiny deposits. Can't you see I'm trying? Can't you see I'm doing my best? Can't you see? Activism is not just a short-term little deposit thing, it's going to require the best of yourself. I think that oftentimes new eager allies forget or don't realize that they're showing up and stepping into a cause or a movement that has a, they've already been doing the work. They've already been planning and celebrating and fighting and protesting long before you ever arrived. So who are you to show up and think that you have a brand new idea that they haven't tried or haven't thought of yet? Um, And I remember once we were all texting in the group chat about the family proclamation and like queer theology. And I think I was texting back and forth with, with Derek and I said, oh my gosh, like when we have this episode for Come Follow Me, we should rewrite the family proclamation like through a lens of queerness. And Derek was like, actually people have already been doing it and sent me like a few rewritten proclamations. And I'm like, wow, of course. Why would I think that this, that people haven't already had this idea? I would have been better situated and more effective if I had just listened. That happens. And that happens to all of us. I've made those mistakes too. And speaking of those mistakes, I don't know if James wants me to talk about this, but I read those DMs too. Wait, is this someone that DM'd you? I don't know this, like, the background. So, yeah, somebody hopped into our D- our uh, our DMs on the social medias. It was the most infuriating critique of, like, my work that I'd ever seen or just of Black Lives Matter in general that I'd ever seen masquerading under the guise of... Curiosity. You know, yeah. curiosity. It was sea lining. I'm finally using that word correctly. It was a classic sea lining. And I spoke with her privately by text myself saying, look, here's what I want you to do. I want you to follow 25 black activists, no commenting, for three months. Then you'll understand Black Lives Matter. Or or you'll understand it better than you do now because she had no idea what's going on. And she said, oh, this is such entitlement. She said, I don't have three months and neither do you. I'm like, <laughs> it's a good thing that I'm I'm into nonviolence because Derek's because, got big um, muscles. He will mess well, somebody let me just up. Say, I'm 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 into <laughs> nonviolence. My point is, she. My analogy would be like it, she wants. To, okay, suppose a loved one is in an accident and there's major surgery and there's a, a trauma and the surgeon is doing the best she can to treat this patient and then some person off the street bursts into the operating room and starts cutting away on and like oh this person needs help and I'm trying to help and I'm, I have all the best intentions and I'm helping and don't criticize me for helping because I'm here because someone needs I'm like no I was like 
you need to just step back and learn and listen before you jump in. So that's where I want to leave that. But I did have more to say about DNC6. One is the empowerment of the individual. We have this language in verses 5 and 6 and 14 about if you will ask of me, you shall receive. Now, as you have asked, um, for thou, blessed art thou for what thou hast done, for thou hast inquired of me. And behold, as often as thou hast inquired, thou hast received instruction of my spirit. And this gets into the to the point of there's nothing wrong with sincere asking. Asking of God is a major motif in all four of these sections. We have it in verse 1 of section 7, verse 1 and 9 and through 11 of section 8, and then section 9, verses 7 and 9. And this asking has a twofold power. First, the people prompt the prophets. That's a major empowerment of the individual. Almost everything we have in the DNC is the result of someone asking the prophets a question. And secondly, not only is it just about accountability for the prophets and being able to ask them, it's also about asking God directly. And here's where we get some more empowerment. Just like James said, verse 19 says, admonish him in his faults. And this does not get enough airtime from what I, I can't, I don't remember this ever being quoted on, in general conference. It's the verses that are quoted least in general conference that we need to be quoting the most. It says, admonish him in his faults. And when we liken this scripture unto ourselves, we're looking over the shoulder of Oliver. And we see this precedent that there is a commandment. This commandment is still necessary and still in force. We are solemnly commanded to admonish the living prophet. Curses will fall on us if we don't. And curses have fall, fallen on us as a people for what we've gotten wrong by not holding our leaders accountable. Now, we will be a more mature and a more loving community if we follow the commandment of holding the prophet accountable. If we do so, we as a church will be a more effective vehicle for peace and inclusion. Now, this is exactly what people say. Why are you trying to enumerate the commandments? This is why. I've started to enumerate the commandments to bring attention to these little used commandments. Here's a life hack from a scripture nerd. <laughs> if any church leader, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. I hate saying my stuff is going to be good, but it is. If any church leader engages in unrighteous dominion and asks you why you did something, like why were you at the Black Lives Matter protest? Why were you at this feminist thing? Why are you standing out for queer people? Why are you at the pride? Why are you, why are you, why don't want whatever. If any church leader says that to you, just say, I was being obedient to the commandment to, and then you fill in the blank by naming a commandment, maybe one that I've enumerated, I'm, I'm going to come out with a list, <laughs> and that response will stop the mouths of any leaders who are trying to block a child of God from their birthright. That's a great point. I was thinking about this just as I was, uh, I was doing my own research on trying to figure out what the scriptural basis was for uh, arguments about gender complementarity or just for gender roles and traits. And I was like, hold up. These aren't really in scriptures about the supposed traits and roles of women. And what I can find is deeply misogynistic and stuff that we don't even take seriously as a church no more. So like, yeah, I, I think a lot about 
just how even we as Christians or as Mormons even, we will be selectively obedient or selectively culturally in line with certain biblical principles or scriptural principles, but not others because as a society, we may have evolved past the point of stoning a woman because she can't prove her virginity. There's yada, also, yada, in a, con- there's also just, a commandment in the scriptures that says that if you come across a witch, you should not let her live. I don't remember where I was and going so- with that <laughs> or why I said it. <laughs> For my own personal identity, it's kind of concerning. <laughs> so I agree to an extent, but also as far as the scriptures are translated correctly... Yeah, that's an important thing to be named. And, I, and I'm thinking about this as I'm enumerating the commandments of which ones do I want out there? Which ones do I think are binding? Which ones are not going to make it on my list? Yeah, that's something we talked about last week on our episode, Elise. We talked about how sometimes we have to be careful about the language that we use or the scriptures that we use in our activism efforts because sometimes they can be like used by both sides, used as a justification by either side of an issue. And so we just have to get really clear about what the driving ethic or value is underneath the use of that scripture um, for us personally and the con like the original intent of the author. Yeah, I had one one point about one of the uh, towards the end of section six, we have verse 37 where Jesus says, behold the wounds which pierced my side and also the prints of the nails in my hands and feet. Be faithful, keep my commandments, and ye shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And I I just want to name, so there's this one disability liberation theologian, Nancy Iasland, who likens the Savior's crucifixion wounds unto her own disability. And here's what she says. Oh, this, this is great. She says, the resurrected Jesus Christ in presenting impaired hands and feet and side to be touched by frightened friends alters the taboo of physical avoidance of disability and calls for followers to recognize their connection and equality at the point of Christ's physical impairment. Christ's disfigured side bears witness to the existence of hidden disabilities as well. Later she goes on to say, For many people whose hidden disabilities keep them from participating fully in the church or from feeling full-bodied acceptance by Christ, accepting the disabled God may enable reconciliation with their own bodies and Christ's body, the church. Hence, disability not only does not contradict the human divine integrity, it becomes a new model of wholeness and a symbol of solidarity. This is from the book The Disabled God. And she says, she says it so brilliantly. And one interesting thing to note is that Jesus' Jesus's scars don't get fixed. They don't get healed in the resurrection. And we notice that the disclosing of one's disability can be a coming out process because the wound in his side wouldn't have been revealed unless Jesus chose to reveal it. And speaking of disability, almost every section in the Doctrine and Covenants reinforces the concepts of agency, accessibility, and accommodation. And on another angle, I've also heard from a number of transgendered Christians who connect their own scars from top surgery with the scars of the risen Christ, and both are sacred. They've survived, they've been transformed, and these scars are part of that story. I really appreciate your reading here because 
it moves us away from suffering mean equal salvation. I think that your your reading and interpretation say that yes, disability and or yes, disability is part of what makes us whole and it transforms us, but not in a way that requires that we must suffer in order to be saved. If our actions in the world matter, then what happens in our embodied state to our physical bodies, I feel like that matters and it's important to God too. So I'm happy to see that it doesn't just disappear. Like the evidence of our journey here in mortality doesn't just go away once we're resurrected or um, dead. So I appreciated that. Yeah. And, and connecting it with my own personal experience, you won't believe how many people think that gay people will somehow be made straight in the resurrection. And they come up to me and like, wait, do you, have you even met me? Like not even God can ungay me, right? <laughs> so, so, so yeah, I, I'm definitely going to be gay in the next life. That's so sad. It makes me mad for you. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, it doesn't bother me. It, bo- it's, it actually hurts their character more than it hurts me. I might want to connect this. I don't know if anyone else has anything. Um, I, I want to connect this into something in DNC seven, and this has to do with sort of the narrowly and individually customized and tailored plans that that the Lord had for John and Peter. So here's what we have. We have this uh, section seven is a translation of a parchment which was not in in Joseph's possession but through the Urim and Thummim they translated this parchment in response to a question like I said you a lot of our revelation comes from the bottom we you come with a question and the Lord said unto me this is in verse 1 John my beloved what desirest thou for if you shall ask what you will it shall be granted unto you and this is about the question whether John will remain embodied without death and be translated, or will he die a typical death? And then in verse 8, it says, contrasting Peter and John, the Lord says, Verily I say unto you, ye shall both, that is, both Peter and John, have according to your desires, for ye both joy in that which, which ye have desired. Let me say that again. Ye shall both have according to your desires, for ye both joy in that which ye have desired. And so they've got a different plan. Peter is going to die, and John is going to not die. And my the key insight here for me is that Peter and John both asked for contradictory blessings, and they both received according to their self-identified needs and desires. And the same is also true of the nine disciples and the three disciples in third Nephi. Notice I didn't call them the three Nephites because they could some of them or all of them could have been ethnically Lamanites. So we don't want to erase the Lamanites. But what this undoubtedly teaches us here in DNC 7 is that the covenant path is not one size fits all. I don't know where people went and where they got this idea that the covenant path is one size fits all, but that's not in our sources. It's not in our scriptures. It's in our culture. But I'm here to say, and this is going to get me in trouble, you haven't understood a single word of scripture if you think the covenant path is one size fits all. 
on the Lord's Covenant path, there are many sizes and shapes of footprints and wheelchair, wheelchair tracks and so on. No one is more concerned about the accessibility of the path than the great Lord who parted the Red Sea and made a way out of no way. We'll get to this in DNC section 8 about making a way for Oliver to translate. And I want to connect this back to the diver diversity of experience. And there's many different options that may or may not have gotten recorded. And I want to go back to exactly what's happening here. Let's talk about lost scriptures. Here's what I have to say about lost scriptures. Here in section 7, we have recovered a glimpse of at one of many lost scriptures. And let me just say that we, of all Christians, have the most authenticity in being able to talk about lost scriptures. You know, other denominations believe the scriptures are complete with nothing lost. But the Book of Mormon itself is a lost scripture that was restored. Now let's meditate on the far-reaching implications of this phenomenon of lost scriptures. What is the payoff? Well, lost scriptures can function as a symbolic placeholder for all of the sacred narratives that are held back from us. It is a concept that we can adopt to name the relative lack of women's voices and queer voices in our canon. Now this framing doesn't make that absence okay, not at all. But my point is that the scriptures that we don't have are just as valid as the ones that we do have. Section 7 is a proof of that. We only have it by accident, in a way. If Joseph and Oliver hadn't been curious enough, this text would not have been recovered. So for me, this means we need to do the work to reconstruct what must have been the voices of the marginalized in former scriptures, and also diligently record our stories today so they will be available for future scriptures. Some of the narratives we write in this generation will be the scriptures of the next generation. It's in verse 8 where the Lord says, You'll both have according to your desires, for ye both joy in that which ye have desired. It's just a further witness of uh, you know what you just said there, Derek. They both got what they wanted because that was the joy that each of them took in you know their service they both were like this is how i want to serve or this is how i want to go out and they both got what they wanted because they basically wanted something that was still good the lord even says that you both have desired righteously right i also based on what you said i see a close parallel with the values inherent in jesus's words to the blind man at jericho oh yeah, say yes. it, say it. And so here's, so they, so this blind man comes to Jesus, and here's what Jesus says to them, to him. What do you wish me to do for you? And he, that is the blind man, said, Lord, that I might see, or that I might regain my sight. And the key here is that Jesus asked him what he wanted. And, and we talked about this earlier. There are many questions about what gets fixed in the resurrection, whether it's around issues of disability or queerness or, or skin color. Now, you've heard this. Have people told you that you're going to turn white? Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. I mean, this is, that tells them, that tells us something about them. It really does. It tells us something more about them than it tells us about God. 
And you know what? Some things not might not get fixed because they don't need to get fixed. Or because they don't want to be fixed. Exactly. Like, yeah. there could be all the wheelchair ramps in heaven. There could be all the things and stuff. Like, sorry, didn't mean to Yeah, that's exactly what we learned from the social model of disability is a large part of what makes something disabling is the fact that we have intentionally structured society in a particular way. If we structured right. it differently, it wouldn't be a barrier at all. Mm-hmm. Heaven might not be a place where those things are fixed, but where accessibility right. is granted to everybody. And so I love the Christ that we have in this text here in in Luke. It's someone who defers to our own knowledge of what is right for us. So in Doctrine and Covenants section 9, I wanted to talk about a bit about personal revelation, but also about the role of an intermediary or someone who like mediates between us and God. And I like this section, but I also think there are some unfortunate aspects that arise here too, because Oliver Cowdery is is no stranger to personal revelation. Like he has been curious and questioned if Joseph Smith and this work was really happening and if it was good, righteous work. And he received his own confirmation and revelation that, yeah, this is real, true stuff. You can be a part of it. And then once Oliver and Joseph Smith link up, we then see a shift where Joseph Smith starts like interpreting God's word for Oliver. And I'm not saying that Oliver stopped seeking his own personal revelation, but at least what we're given in the text makes it seem like Oliver is kind of defaulting um, to Joseph Smith. And I also understand like, yeah, okay, if I was hanging out with the prophet or someone who had this really great talent, I would want to see and know if they could hear something different than what I understood my own personal revelation to be. So I see that, but I do find it problematic that, or, but I do find it problematic if and when we stop turning to and relying on and trusting our own personal revelation and start putting all of our trust into an outside authority to tell me what God wants me to do, as opposed to trusting my own personal authentic relationship with God. And I think even more concerning than that is when we begin questioning and silencing and dismissing our own personal revelation in order to fall in line with outside authority um, for what they think God is telling us to do. And I think we see this really keenly when Oliver feels within his heart that there's some more work that God is calling him to do aside from just being the scribe. Um, He does want to translate and God seems to give that gift to him as long as his desires are pure and honest. And then we don't really know what happens, but Oliver attempts to translate and it doesn't go well. And then Joseph Smith like receives this message from God to Oliver and the summary, I mean, this is the whole section nine, but I think the summary is like, Ooh, Oliver, you didn't follow all of the proper steps. So I've taken this gift away from you. You shouldn't translate right now, but don't complain because this is not me, Joseph saying it to you. Like, this is what God wants for you, right? Don't worry, Joseph will step in. He has all of the power. So just stay in your lane where I called you to. And it's a really like pejorative condescending and a bit of gaslighting going on because Oliver thought, or this is me assuming what Oliver thought. I think that 
Perhaps Oliver already received his own personal revelation. And then when he goes to step into that fullness of his power, he's made out to be a failure and he's shamed and he is counseled to like, just wait a little bit longer. Just be patient and just be patient with the role that you're given right now and don't try and seek anything more for yourself. And so this, these verses make me think of all of the ways that we're asked to place more trust and vulnerability and belief in an intermediary between us and God, whether it's like local church leaders or worldwide church leaders. But either way, we're giving away our power and authority to another. And that's exactly what patriarchy and hierarchy want from us, to default to a structure where men... Um, particularly in patriarchy, where men have all of the translation powers and where men are the only qualified people to really understand God. And then they are the ones who then tell us what God wants from us. And so as women living in patriarchy, we live in this dilemma, right, of having to choose between having an authentic relationship with our God through personal revelation versus falling in line and conforming to what an outside authority tells us God wants and expects of us. And so I just wanted to ask, what do we do then? Well, my thoughts on this, the scripture here seems to me to be a mixed blessing because I really derive a lot of benefit from looking at the way I frame verse 8 of DNC 9. The Lord says to Oliver, But behold, I say unto you that you must study it out in your mind. Then you must ask me if it be right. And if it is right, I will cause that your bosom shall burn within you. Therefore, you shall feel that it is right. Notice what it, for me, what I notice is that it doesn't say, Oh, you don't need to study. Just go ask the living prophet. Go ask Joseph. That's not what it says here. So for me, I find it validating that Oliver had the ability to go directly and independently from Joseph figure out if something's right. And the other thing I noticed from this is applying this now, Oliver, to the leaders of the church and their ability to receive revelation. We know that it's imperfect because Oliver and Joseph and I and all of humanity we're not like different species. Like a lot of this is going to work the same for all of us on our journeys. And so this is going to apply to the top leaders who are not infallible, who are going to have the same frailties as Oliver and Joseph did. And so from this verse, I learn how revelation works. We must do the best we can with all of our faculties and all of our resources that we have to come up with an answer ourselves, And then we take that provisional answer to God for confirmation. That's what it is to study it out in your mind. Then you must ask the Lord if it's right. One of the most important takeaways of this text for me is that planning and preparation are prerequisites for truly powerful revelation. Doing your homework in advance is essential. Now, our leaders absolutely haven't done their homework on gender and orientation. They have refused to learn out of the best books. And our leaders haven't really done their homework on race and culture either, though I I think that President Oaks must have done a little homework to be ready to say and hear that Black Lives Matter. So what does this mean? To me, this really limits the authority of the prophets. Not to say that your reading isn't valid or that you... I think our views end up being complementary, at least I hope they speak to different 
aspects of the same underlying truth. But to me, this verse says that our leaders are limited by the questions they are ready to ask. Given this reality... Ooh, say that again, Derek. Oh, our leaders are limited by the questions they are ready to ask. Ooh. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So given this reality of our mortal world, what are we to do? My answer is go directly to God. That's what I call the zeroth presidency. I made up this this phrase, the zeroth presidency. Now, I don't know if you know about um, the the first, first and second laws of thermodynamics, but the physicists realize, actually, we named the first and second laws of thermodynamics, but there's a more fundamental underlying law that we now need to name, and they called it the zeroth law of thermodynamics because it is logically prior to the others, even though it was named later. And that's what I'm going to do. The zeroth presidency trumps the first presidency, and it trumps every other presidency in the church. Now, what is the zeroth presidency? It is our ability to go directly to God. It's an even deeper authority that is more foundational and more accountable than the first presidency or anyone else in the church. The zeroth presidency is where the buck stops. It's our own internal spirit crying out the truths that God has provided directly to us as individuals. In fact, if you take Moroni's promise seriously and literally, our testimony of the Book of Mormon and of the church and of the prophets and of everything else is based on our own zeroth presidency, our own spirit-infused conscience, the testimony that we have directly Every other testimony is based on that one, not the other way around. And part of my solution would be to suggest a canon within the canon. I don't know if people in our, uh, in our denomination have talked about this, but some scriptures are more important than others. And we have to ask. And this is where wisdom and experience and maturity come into play. Which, which texts are we going to rely on? You know, the curious detail that Solomon had 4,000 stalls of horses, that's in Second Chronicles 9, verse 23, is not even on the same planet in importance as for God so loved the world in John three sixteen. And this gets back to the complexity of the commandment enumeration project that Channing alluded to earlier. Yes, once I enumerate all the commandments, I will find that they conflict. And they're contradictory, and I will need to choose which one that I'm going to follow. I am not going to follow those problematic ones that call for death or you know whatever. I'm going to use love and justice and mercy to interpret the law. That's exactly what Jesus did. And so I also want to name, oh, you know, I, I, I used to say that Hagar was the first theologian in the Bible because she's the first one to name a description of God. I now want to say that Eve is the first theologian in the Bible because she's the first one to enumerate the commandments. Because she's the one that said, look, you've got this commandment to be fruitful and multiply, and you've got this commandment to um, uh, not eat the fruit of the, the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she said, look, you've got these two commandments. I've set them both in front of you, Adam. And you're the one that's pretty clueless. I'm the one that's telling you which one's more important. And she, by enumerating the commandments, attained a profound theological discovery that Adam did not. 
Well, and not just that she enumerated the commandments, but that she trusted her own personal revelation aside from like instead of what was given to her by an outside authority. And once she did that, she knew the pleasure and the love that came with it. And so, of course, she would want to offer it to Adam. And I think that there's a a small moment in that story where both Eve and Adam are stepping into their authentic power and they are really seen as their whole vulnerable selves because they have trusted in what they know to be true. Like Derek and I, at least in our previous episodes, we've talked a lot about receiving revelation since our like since our discussion in on Moroni 10 a few weeks back. In fact, I don't think there's been a single come follow me lesson since then that didn't reference personal revelation since then. And in this particular lesson where Oliver Cowdery seems to be the focus, many parts of the equation to personal revelation, if not all of them, are present in these sections. And there's some peculiar ones as well, one of which Derek has already highlighted. Um, This one that we see a bunch in uh, verse one, ask in faith with an honest heart, believing that you shall receive. That's actually in section eight to go back there. That's probably the most prevalent piece of the puzzle over the course of the last few lessons. Moroni taught us to ask in faith with a sincere heart with real intent. Joseph Smith highlighted at least twice in his history the effect of asking in faith, believing that we shall receive as long as well as its necessity. Uh, once in a reading of James 1.5 and again in describing his first visitation from Moroni. Then we get this bit of information that I don't think we take seriously enough in our quest for new wisdom, one that Derek has already highlighted brilliantly. Oliver was kind of admonished in section 9 after failing to translate the records, primarily for not understanding that he had to play a more active role in the process of receiving revelation. Derek has already highlighted this, but like some of the most powerful uh, revelation that we get, the most intentional and the, I, I think the most necessary revelation we get as well, is brought on not just by simply asking for the revelation, but by doing our part and studying it out in our minds to get the revelation. We miss that a lot in these conversations. I was reading uh, one of my favorite Instagram accounts to follow right now is... The Faithful Feminist. Stop Your Silence. Sorry, what was that, Elise? I was Elise? just making a joke that your favorite Instagram account to follow was our account. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Like, that goes without saying. Sorry, sorry. But... Uh, The Instagram account Stop Your Silence highlights examples of racism, like particularly within the context of Mormonism, but especially it highlights it in places in Utah and sometimes these instances that happen at BYU. And uh, the one, one of the more recent ones that I read was about how in this class on deliberate anti-racism, they end it with somebody talking about an experience they've had And uh, this one person apparently got up and gave like a three minute talk on how white privilege wasn't real and how racism didn't exist, yada, yada. And it was just a whole mess. And people were like praising her. And she even leveraged her religion to explain why, like why racism wasn't real or why white privilege wasn't a thing or why she didn't need to feel guilty for being white. And um, she... They, they said something along the lines of they prayed about it and God told them that that was the right answer. And I was just like, I don't think you are entitled to that response. If if a bunch of black folks are saying that racism is real and that and that racism is real, if intellectuals, if people, if the majority of people, 86 percent by the Count the Pew Research Center are saying that this is a real thing and you are saying 
that you have prayed about it, but you can't accept the existence of white privilege or you think somehow that you need to feel guilty for being white, I don't think you've done the relevant and necessary research and study in your mind about what exactly the real problem is here. God could have very well told you that you don't need to feel guilty for being white, but this isn't this isn't the conversation being had. Like the conversation isn't feel guilty for being white. The conversation is seeing how that does not inconvenience you in our world that we live in. See how being white does not actually cause an obstacle for you the way that being black causes an obstacle for me. So I can very much see how people could be led to either not receive revelation or to miss the whole picture simply because they do not do the requisite work of study. And I encounter this all the time in my conversations on anti-racism. People are unable to feel or figure out exactly where they fit in in this particular conversation because they haven't done the work. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine at Yale who needed to have a couple of things explained to them. And they basically asked me, like, what does this look like or what do I need to do? And I wanted to scream back at them, you were at Yale. I know you are smart enough to figure this out or to at least do the requisite research of how, what your place is. And, you know, I, I try not to get excited. I try not to get too mad about stuff. But like when you clearly have the capacity within yourself to do the work and then you come to me and ask me what you can do, I'm just like, no, I'm not going to give you that answer. And I think God is kind of the same way sometimes. Be like, you have in your possession and in your capability to do the requisite research. You can bring that to me when you're done. But this just communicates to me that you're being lazy or you feel kind of entitled to my wisdom, my knowledge, or my labor when you could just as easily do it yourself. I believe that God respects labor, and I feel like the ministry of Jesus Christ is a witness to this. Jesus never granted a miracle or never did anything that the human body or the human will wasn't capable of doing it themselves. James E. Talmadge has a brilliant uh, treatise on this in Jesus the Christ, where he highlights a bunch of miracles that Jesus Christ performed, uh, highlighting, for example, the miracle of bringing Lazarus to life. Jesus just called forth Lazarus from the grave, but then he tell, told everybody else to loose him and let him go. Jesus could have, like divinated some unwrapping of a body but like he was like no y'all can handle this y'all got this so y'all do this much so uh mm, i just i want to name that that's a coming out story like literally <laughs> yes. and how it's the importance of the community to support the person coming out yes yes and also the importance of uh and I'm, I guess I already highlighted this, but just the importance of us doing what is within our capacity to do before we go to the Lord with questions or with a request for miracles. Because a lot of times, like it was in Oliver's case, I believe, I think Oliver just didn't do the necessary work. Um, that is how I typically read this, because this is often how I, this is often the situation I find myself in when I have failed to receive answers or at least failed to get the ones that I require. Um, I often find that it's because I haven't done the necessary work. So I just wanted to bring that out, especially in conversations surrounding activism or, uh, you know, where we're trying to be good allies or trying to be good workers in this fight for the humanization of people of different races, people of different genders and sexual identities and uh, people of different abilities. So... Anyway. Can I add something to that too? Yes, ma'am. I love that, that you said 
yeah, like you have to do your own study and research before. But I think on the flip side or the same side, what is the phrase? Other side of the coin, maybe? The others. Yeah, thank you. The other side of the same coin is, yes, we have to do our research, but are we open enough to a God's voice that we don't expect? Like, are we open enough to be wrong and Mm. to hear God say, no, like just because you, you studied white privilege and you want an answer that 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 validates that you, you want that validates you doesn't mean that that's actually from me are you open enough to be corrected are you open enough to get it wrong mm. that's a great point that's a great point and i think derek you alluded to this earlier just uh i feel like a big reason the general authorities and perhaps a lot of people in power in the church have not felt to say anything about uh where uh, where gay people or where trans people sit in the plan of salvation is because they're scared of an answer that doesn't affirm them, or they're scared of an answer that is going to cause them to make some big changes in this church. I think that a good example of that is the ordained women movement, because if we're talking about personal revelation, they followed the formula. They asked the question, they waited for a response And then the response was, well, no, like, and so for me, I don't think that the revelation that women shouldn't have the priesthood, I'm not even sure they asked the question. (laughs) That just highlights that, yeah, sure, we can follow the formula of ask the question and wait for the revelation to come down. But I think that this highlights kind of what Elise was talking about earlier is that in the church, we do have an intermediary, especially when we talk about making church-wide changes. And so what happens when when something needs to happen in order to achieve equality that doesn't because we're relying on the intermediary waiting for them to ask a question that's not ready that they're not ready to ask or that they're not ready to receive an answer for. Just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Channing and Elise, do you guys want to drop your socials for, for our listeners so they know where to find you? Sure. We are on Instagram at The Faithful Feminists. That is also our website, thefaithfulfeminist.com. And our podcast name is The Faithful Feminist. So you can just find us by literally Googling any of that. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Derek, what are our socials? Where can people find us? At beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Derek's jokes are awful.com. And. <laughs> I'm buying that domain so you can't have it. (laughs) (laughs) And no, that's not real. That's just a joke. That's one of my awful jokes, okay? Uh, You can also see us uh, at BTBLDS on Instagram and Twitter. And we're also on Facebook. Just search for Beyond the Block. I think we've already talked about the events that are coming up on our end. We've highlighted the uh, Black LDS Legacy Conference that's going to be happening virtually on the 20th. Eventbrite just dropped the link to tickets. So if you guys are looking for tickets to the event, you can go to the Black LDS Legacy Facebook page 
And on the most recent save the date notification flyer, you can find the Eventbrite link that's, that will take you to be able to register for the event. I think the event is free, but donations are of course accepted. But anyway, thank you everybody for being able to join the Faithful Feminist and Beyond the Block for this collaborative episode. We all shall see you all next week. Thank you.